0: Welcome back. I think we will begin this morning. I'll open us in prayer, and then we will pick up where we left off last week in Deuteronomy 11. So let's, uh, let's pray over our time together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the word made flesh. That you and your son came and dwelt among us, and that we have opportunity this season to remember that, to reflect on it, to celebrate it, to rejoice over it, and to bring others up into that celebration as well. We thank you as well for the word that you have preserved on the page, that by Moses and the prophets, and by your apostles, you have seen fit to preserve a word for us, that we can come and read it and reflect on it, discuss it and meditate over it, and in all of these things, learn to live by it. We thank you for the word that proceeds from your mouth that we live upon, and we pray this morning that you would help us feast on it, that we would be filled with joy, seeing not only what you have done for your people, but the rewards that you offer and hold out for us. We thank you for these good words and we pray that you would, by your spirit, bless our study this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we were in Deuteronomy 11. We uh, noticed that in verse 2 and following, especially through verse 7, Moses has narrowed down his focus to this particular generation of Israelites and said, you saw something that no other generation after you has ever seen the mighty works of the Lord for you and among you and even to you, based on that, Moses gives a concluding command, and that's where we'll pick up this morning, verse 8 of Deuteronomy 11, because they've seen all of these things, their their eyes have seen the great works that the Lord did. Verse 8, you shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today. They have more reason than any other to respond rightly to God's acts of salvation and judgment. But the Lord doesn't only tell us to obey for the sake of obedience. He holds out reward as well. That reward comes in the last part of verse 8 through verse 9. You shall observe these commandments that I'm commanding you today. In order that you may be strong, go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses is using every pastoral trick up his sleeve to motivate his people to obedience. He's just spent a good deal of time talking about the Lord did this on your behalf. There is a proper response to that, and that response is, you obey what the Lord says, and you love the Lord. Moses now switches gears, and he says, not only do you obey because it is the right thing to do, it's simply the proper response to the Lord's salvation for you, the Lord also holds out reward for you in obedience. Moses shifts his attention from works in the past to the reward of obedience in the future. The land now comes into main focus here. In fact, from chapter 11, verse 8, to verse 21, the word land occurs ten times. Seven of those occurrences are from verse 8 to 12. So Moses is uh, narrowing down and focusing on the land that is supposed to be their intended possession... It's also the object of their promise and the place of additional blessing. And that comes out of verse 8. That you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land. It's supposed to be their possession by divine grant uh, that you're going over to possess. Verse 9, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them. So there it is as the object of promise. A land flowing with milk and honey, which is the possibility of future blessing in the land. But that land is given on condition of obedience. Notice how that works in verses 8 to verse 9. Keep the whole command that I'm commanding you in order that these things may happen, that you may be strong, you may go in, you may possess the land and you may live long on it. If Israel fails to obey, we'll come to that. But right now, uh, let's move on a little bit. Verses 10 to 12. Moses contrasts the goodness of the land of Canaan with what we might call the paltry goodness of the land of Egypt. So verses 10 to 11 and 12. For the land that you are entering to take possession of it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables, but the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. So there's some contrasts here. The land of Canaan on the one hand, the land of Egypt on the other. The first contrast is brief, uh, but it's topographical. No mention is really given of the land of Egypt directly about its topography, other than you water your crops by your foot as a vegetable garden, And we'll come to that in a little bit. But it does make very plain what the land of Canaan is like in verse 11. The land you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys. That is unlike their experience in Egypt, which was very flat and a plain. But the reason the topography is mentioned is because the way in which the land is cared for and utilized differs. And that's really the focus here. In verse 10... It's not like the land of Egypt, from which you came, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it, or we could even emphasize that, actually, where you sowed your seed and you irrigated it, like a garden of vegetables. Contrast that to the land of Canaan, last half of verse 11 and verse 12. It is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. What's actually being contrasted here between Egypt and Canaan is not exactly the topography. It's not exactly the way it receives its water. The contrast is between the work that you did in Egypt and the work the Lord does in Canaan. Those are the contrasts that Moses is actually making. And notice how that works. Back to verse 10 again. For the land that you are entering to take possession of it is not like the land of Egypt... From which you have come where you sowed your seed and you irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land you are going over to possess is watered by the Lord your God who cares for it. It drinks its rain from heaven. The contrast is between in Egypt, you did all the work. In Canaan, the Lord did all the work, does all the work. That contrast is seen very clearly when we realize that verse 10 says, you sowed your seed in Egypt. There's no mention of sowing seed in Canaan. This is completely dropped out. Why in Egypt did they sow their seed and in Canaan, Moses makes absolutely no mention of it? Because in Canaan, he drops out the human element. You sowed and you watered in Egypt. In Canaan, the Lord waters it. He cares for it. Moses doesn't deny human activity in Canaan. What he denies is human sufficiency in providing in the land of Canaan. And he's not denying that in Egypt, God brought the water either. He's merely contrasting in Egypt, you did your work. In Canaan, the Lord provides for you. He's the one who sees to what you have. And Moses is aiming for three pastoral effects here. The first is to provoke hope. Uh, The land is worth the effort of going in, taking possession of, and obeying the Lord while they're there. Um, The land is worth doing that because in Egypt they experienced a measure of success, which came about through repetitive cycle. But in Canaan, effortless bounty. It's effortless bounty. The Lord provides for it. What do you do? You gather it, which we'll come to in just a little bit. And so God cares for the land of Canaan in a way he doesn't care for the land of Egypt, which is both a tremendous advantage, and if we're considering material prosperity, a potential great disadvantage as well. We'll come to that in just a little bit. But that leads to the second thing. Not only does Moses aim to provoke hope in the potential of unlimited future effortless bounty, he's also trying to provoke faith. Farmers know they can do all of their work year-round, and if it doesn't rain, there's nothing. They recognize a dependency on God that most other forms of business don't have as plainly. And that's what Moses is focusing on here. He's focusing on on the agricultural aspect of things. And not only that, the crop end. There will be herds and flocks there too. And in fact, in southern Canaan, uh, there is almost no agriculture. Bethlehem is almost the cutoff where you start shifting from pure pasture land to a little bit of farm ground. And the further north you go, the more farm ground there is. But what Moses is focusing on here is the Abundant provision that will be there as a result of the Lord's work. He focuses on the farming aspect because that, more than any other way, illustrates their dependence on God. We have that in every single industry as well. Farming is probably the most pointed uh, modern example, but think of it this way. Spiritual growth, as we've been hearing the last several Sundays... Do you know people who have heard the Bible, heard the Bible a long time, and heard it taught well, and it just didn't soak? There was no fruit produced as a result of hearing those words. Both in the teaching and in the learning, complete dependence on God for any result. It's no difference in engineering and in medicine. In engineering, if God didn't continually uphold the atoms, nothing would work. Everything would fall apart. In medicine, whether it's natural pregnancy or in vitro fertilization, if the Lord doesn't cause the embryo to stick, nothing happens. It's all dependent on the Lord from beginning to end. Moses is trying to draw that reality in a pictorial way through the agriculture so that Israel would understand where we're going, is dependent on the Lord, and we ought to recognize that in a very powerful way. Egypt is less obvious. In the same way, engineering and medicine seems less obviously dependent on the Lord. Egypt had this repetitive cycle. The Nile would flood the Delta Plain. They'd water their crops by uh, irrigating it, by drawing trenches with their feet. And it was a matter of cycle. Almost every year you could anticipate the exact same thing happening over and over and over and over again. Well, here in South Dakota, we don't have that sort of thing. Just like they don't in Canaan, we are entirely dependent on the rain that comes. We don't have any great river system flowing through our part of the world that provides a sure source of irrigation. We're dependent on rain. So it is in Canaan. God... Uh, reliance upon God is more obvious because the rain comes from God, his heavenly dwelling. And Moses emphasizes that little bit very subtly, but he does, right? Verse 11, the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven. And by that word, that trigger word heaven, Israel is supposed to recognize the place where God is. God sends the rain and it doesn't come by matter of repetitive cycle. We'll pause right there very briefly before we get to the third thing Moses is doing. He's provoking hope, he's provoking faith that the Lord is the one who cares for this place, and the third one will be provoking obedience or love. We'll come to that in just a second. But any thoughts or questions so far? Okay. He's provoking obedience or love. We mentioned in verse 12, it's a land that the Lord cares for year-round, and the Lord responds to the people on it. Verse 13, And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock and you shall eat and be full. Obedience is blessed by material reward. Verse 13 looks entirely into the future if you will indeed obey my commandments when you're there. Uh, Moses is assuming possession of the land. But going back to the land again, it's been said repeatedly throughout this section. Verse 14, it comes up again. He will give the rain for your land in its season. Up in verse 12, it is a land that the Lord your God cares for, the eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it, a reference to the land. From beginning of the year to the end of the year, Moses is claiming God cares for the land, not exactly the people on it, per se. That is no small detail in biblical theology. But why does Moses say God cares for the land and doesn't say anything about the people who live on that land? When the people are exiled, the reason for it is that God is caring for his land over and against the rebellious people who do not deserve to be on it. Let's go back to Leviticus 18. Moses has been reflecting for a real long time at this point on the law that the Lord has given, and he has no doubt spent a good time meditating on Leviticus 18 verses 24 to 28 do not make do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things which are all these abominable sexual practices for by all these things the nations i am driving out before you have become unclean and the land became unclean so that i punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. That little phrase there is simply to give the picture that the land cannot tolerate the people on it, and it's going to vomit them out. It, the land cannot sustain the wickedness of the people on it. And this is not, um, they didn't go green. This is bad sexual practices, perverted sexuality that causes the land to vomit them out. But let's keep going. 26, Leviticus eighteen twenty-six. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the sojourner who sojourns among you, for the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation... That was before you. What's really fascinating is that this chapter begins, don't do as they do in Egypt, and don't do as they le- as they do in the land of Canaan. And then it lists all these bad sexual practices. Did the land of Egypt vomit out its inhabitants? Well, Egypt had dynasties long before this, and long after it, And there was some pretty good continuity. They had invaders who would occasionally come and wreak havoc. But Egypt, the land, never really vomited out its inhabitants the way the Lord drove out the natives of Canaan. Why? The eyes of the Lord are upon the land. He cares for it. If we were to fast forward to 2 Chronicles, we don't actually need to turn there. You may if you want to. I'll give you the reference. 2 Chronicles 36, verses 20 and 21. Israel was driven on... Uh, Jerusalem and Judea were exiled to Babylon so that the land could enjoy the Sabbaths that it never enjoyed when the people of Israel were on it. And as you go through the book of Leviticus, what you'll find over and over again is the exact same thing we just saw in Leviticus 18. So in reference to murder, in bloodshed, in reference to bad sexual practices, in response to theft, all of those different things, the land becomes unclean. Verse eight, uh, sorry, Leviticus 18 is the most pointed in expressing the land will spew you out for all of these things. But the point is this. The land of Canaan, because the Lord watches it, and has a unique relationship with that little parcel that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because of that promise, it has a unique relationship to him. That relationship is, it vomits out its inhabitants who don't live by his commandments. The Canaanites got spewed out. Eventually, the Israelites got spewed out. Why? Well, Deuteronomy, the eyes of the Lord are upon it, from the first of the year to the end of the year. God does care for the people who are on it. But his offer of blessing is essentially the reversal of the curse that came in Genesis 3. And I would encourage you to turn to Genesis 3 because um, we are going to look at Genesis 3 and we'll even look at Genesis 2 in just a little bit. But notice what God does in response to Adam's rebellion. Genesis 3, starting in verse 17. till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The Lord is reversing that in the land of Canaan. And notice the themes. In Deuteronomy 11, keep a finger in Genesis, but in Deuteronomy 11, verse 13, if you obey my commandments, if you will listen to my voice, contrast to Genesis 3 because you've listened to the voice of your wife. Contrast the land of Canaan and its offer of effortless production to what happens in Genesis 3. By the sweat of your face, you'll eat bread. What happens to the land as a result of Israel's obedience in Deuteronomy 11? Showers of blessing. Literally, showers of blessing. What happens in Genesis 3? cursed is the ground because of you. What Moses is doing is he is showing that the Lord is reversing the fortunes of Canaan if Israel obeys from what happened in Adam's failure even in Eden. But that reversal into blessing has conditions. If You obey my voice. Now, that should provoke all sorts of specific forms of obedience. In fact, if we keep a finger in Genesis, if you will, but in Deuteronomy, we could go forward to chapter 14, verse 22. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. What would encourage Israel to tithe their seed? Effortless and abundant production. What happens when you do that? Tithing will be no problem whatsoever. There will be an abundance. We could look as well at Deuteronomy 15, verses 1 to 6. We don't necessarily need to read the whole thing. But since I mentioned Second Chronicles, I can't uh, skip over Deuteronomy 15. At the end of every seven years you shall grant a release, and this is the manner of the release, every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever is your, of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. And once again, the author of Second Chronicles is on his game. He was reading Deuteronomy 15, verses 1 to 6. And we, what he saw was Israel didn't do this, never granted the release. So what's going on in the exile? The Lord is exacting those Sabbaths back that they never gave the land. That is also tied into the sabbatical year here as well. So it is given upon condition of obedience. So what happens now is the land of Canaan becomes a barometer of Israel's spiritual health. Now I've been uh, going with you through Deuteronomy for 27 weeks, and one thing I've not done up to this point is read you a paragraph out of one of the commentaries I use Today I'm going to do that. Daniel Block, some of you may remember him from a few years ago when he was here, wrote a wonderful commentary over the book of Deuteronomy, and he summarizes it all this way. He says, Moses' comments are utopian. Although Egypt receives virtually no rainfall because of the annual inundation of the Nile Delta with silt and the constant flow of the river, any farmer would have preferred the Garden of Egypt To the rocky and hilly terrain of Palestine. This is obviously not the objective report of the government surveyor, but the dream of a man who can only see the land from a distance but cannot enter it. With this speech, Moses tries to excite his people about the prospects awaiting them on the other side of the Jordan. Moses envisions the promised land through the eyes of faith. The land is good not only because it represents the fulfillment of the promises to the ancestors, but also because it drives its inhabitants to depend on God. To the eyes of faith, this is paradise indeed. If you wanted to objectively compare Egypt and Palestine, you would have to accuse Moses of being tremendously biased and non-objective. But he looks at it through faith. The same thing he's trying to provoke Israel to and obedience because if they obey the blessings come if they don't they will not thoughts or questions over the land as it is So the the question relates to the moisture given and the relationship of the inhabitants on it. So what Moses is doing here is he is saying that Canaan is not like Egypt. Egypt didn't spew out its inhabitants, even though they were tremendously wicked. But because the Lord promised this land to Abraham and to Abraham, if he obeyed, which has the condition on it back in Genesis 17, that's... The condition that the Lord relates to this land with at this time. So, the Canaanites, when their wickedness is complete, the Lord drives them off, ideally. And He gives it to Israel. Not because of her righteousness, but because of a promise God had made earlier on. And what happens later on is it's not just drought. Drought does happen. So, um, when we get to the end of Deuteronomy, there will be a long list of curses, right? Deuteronomy 28, a list of blessings and a list of curses, right? Those curses go in a progression, progressive fashion. Drought is one of the earlier ones on the list. If Israel continues unrepentant in her sins, it will result in her expulsion through exile. Ultimately, the same thing that happened to the Canaanites that they're dispossessing. They're throwing them off the land. And so really the Canaanites had two options. They could either run or they could die. Either way, they no longer had the land. Israel, if she lives like a Canaanite, will experience the fate of a Canaanite. That's not necessarily the fate of an individual Israelite. That is the national fate. And so Moses here, I didn't mention this, and maybe I should have. Last week, I made a big deal that Moses had narrowed down his focus to the people of Israel as a unit Um, By switching his pronouns to the plural, he actually switches that back in verse 10. So in verse 10 now, for the land that you are entering, now he's talking to the people as a whole again, not just specifically this generation, he's speaking to all Israel now. So this generation had more reason than any other past or, well, future anyway, uh, to pay attention to what the Lord says, go in and take possession of the land. Verse 10, he switches to say, when you as a national group, you as one body are entering in to take possession of the land, this is what it's going to be like. And so it's a national policy, not primarily an individual Israelite policy. I hope that scratches where you itch a little bit. We'll we'll see if we can fill it out here. The question relates to modern Israel. You know, I should have anticipated that question coming a little bit more than I did. Um, But my my response to that would be this. It is important to keep in mind that this is the Sinaitic Covenant. The Sinaitic Covenant had an expiration date on it, and that expiration was the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. The New Covenant is what we pay attention to. I cannot. I don't know the mind of God and all of its details, and so I can't tell you exactly what the Lord's mind is in relation to the modern parcel of Palestine today. What I can tell you is that we are not to pay too much spiritual attention to it because everything is in Christ. It's no longer related to the land of Canaan as these people experienced it. What we will come to in a little bit um, here uh, after I explain a little bit more and we go a little bit further in the text, we'll come back and kind of summarize all of this in a little bit more of a contemporary fashion. So uh, we'll maybe hold the rest of that thought for a few minutes. Great question, though. Anything else? Okay. We'll uh, step forward here just a little bit. The condition, verse 13, we'll go back to that real quick. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today... And what does it look like to obey those commandments? To love the Lord your God and to serve him. And love and serve with all your heart and with all your soul. Here the concepts of love and obedience are pretty much interchangeable, which makes sense. Uh, Love is an act of obedience and obedience is an expression of love. Those two things are pretty much interchangeable serve here is probably best understood in the context of a life of devoted worship, including all of our allegiance, actions, and affections. And so really, I would say that there is minimal difference, really, between loving and serving the Lord. Those two things are both springing from the deepest essence of our being. Our heart and soul, uh, no doubt, are meant not to give different perspectives but to give a fuller perspective on what is going on here. So I would not make too big of a difference between those. Paul's summary of the Christian life is almost exactly the same. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We do that because we love the Lord more than we love anything else. And whose glory would we rather see uh, come about? And not only that, in everything we do, a heart and soul do it with gusto. So that is the condition if you love and serve the Lord, if you are obedient to the Lord, that way is maybe a way to say it, through love and service, then he will give you all of these blessings. The rain of your land and its season, the early and the later rain, and you may gather in your grain and your wine and oil. So once again, Israel is seen to work. But here again is the third contrast. We mentioned two earlier, terrain or topography and the way the land is nurtured. Here's the third contrast. Egypt was a vegetable garden. What are you going to have? Barley, wine, you will oil. He'll give you grass for the fields of your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. When, uh, when Jen and I first got married and lived in an apartment, we had our garden out at my, my parents' farm. As far as the eye could see, I could plant and get the produce of it. We had a very large garden patch. We come to town we get this little garden plot in our backyard. It leaves leaves a guy wanting um, just not quite as much produce there as I would really like to have in a year's time. That's the contrast here. Egypt, it's that little plot. I mean, it's a little parcel in the backyard. Canaan? oil and wine and barley and you'll eat and be full fully satisfied there will be nothing left that you could possibly want but now we're going to try and summarize this a little bit and we'll go back here to the beginning real quick Israel's obedience is the condition they meet now for future blessing and not only that future material blessing verse 8 again You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today. Why? So that in the future you may be strong and go in, possess the land that you're going over to possess, and live long in that land. As Christians, we ought to eagerly affirm the fact that God gives material reward for spiritual obedience but we don't do it in the same way the gospel prosperity does, which says, you will experience that material blessing now. Christians say, no, that temporal blessing was part of the Sinaitic covenant, where the land functions as a barometer of Israel's spiritual health, which means, as she obeys, there is blessing. As she disobeys, there is cursing. As she obeys, there is blessing. As she disobeys, there is cursing, and the problem is there's always a lat, a lag, right? So Solomon, outrageous prosperity under Solomon, less prosperity, but still some prosperity under Rehoboam, and as you know, from half of Solomon's reign through Rehoboam's reign, it was kind of a tragedy, but they still had prosperity, and that's the way it would often go, right? There was a lag. So when there was a good king and things went a little bit better, uh, it didn't really show immediately in the economy. But it it did show up a little bit later. That's the Sinaitic Covenant. For us, does obedience result in prosperity? It's a little bit more complicated. The reason for that is is this. The Proverbs stand true. Honesty will typically allow someone to fare better in the long run than deception in business, right? And we see that played out as we watch headline news. People who dabble in shady business often end up getting caught and it doesn't go well for them, though in the short run it perhaps did. But honesty will generally allow someone to fare a little bit better long-term. On the other hand, what happens if you are honest to your Christian convictions in the business place today? Well, you might have some trials and some tribulations. Your job might not be as secure as you would like it to be. Prosperity just might not be in the cards if you will indeed obey my commandments and all that I command you today, such as being my witnesses. The culture doesn't really like that, and it can put prosperity in a great deal of jeopardy, especially as we expose sin in the culture and in individual lives. That doesn't go well. But, remember, in the Sinaitic Covenant, which is what we're dealing with here, material realities were meant to reflect what were supposed to be spiritual realities. But since those spiritual spiritual realities were rarely attained, the material prosperity rarely materialized. In our day, we have the spiritual realities. We are the spiritual realities in the new covenant. What then of the material reward? That's resurrection. That's what we wait for. We wait to have the new heavens and the new earth as a possession all our own. Where there is no sin, where honesty does reign supreme and righteousness and all all the other divine attributes... We don't merely look for an ethereal heaven that's, you know, something foggy out there. We look for a new heavens and a new earth in resurrected bodies and endless, abundant blessing in it. We wait for the physical manifestations to catch up to the spiritual realities. What Christians long for is the day when physical realities align with spiritual realities. That's what we're waiting for, when Christ ushers that in. In the meantime, think of it this way. Let's go to Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, where we see this exact same thing playing out in Jesus' teachings. Matthew 5, starting in verse 2. opened his mouth Jesus and taught them saying Matthew 5:3 Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven which I think includes now verse 4 Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And notice, obedience now yields blessing later. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That little line there about heaven, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. That is no contradiction to what I'm saying, because if we go back to Revelation 21, where we see all of this played out, Revelation 21, verses 2 and 4, To four. So Revelation twenty one verse two, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Think of First Peter. We wait. We have uh, an undefiled, unfading inheritance preserved for us, kept for us in heaven by God. Though now for a little while, uh, if if necessary, we experience trials and tribulations. Well, the being kept in heaven, that is what Matthew 5 is saying. And what Revelation 21 is saying, that preserved inheritance is in heaven, preserved for us, but it will be manifest for us in the end time. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Doesn't stay there, comes down, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I lur- heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. And now here's the blessing, a material blessing you might even say. He will wipe every, away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Not to mention the tree of life and the tree of tree of life as well that uh, show up in chapter twenty-two. So lots lots of wonderful things to come. So reward Christians should be eager to validate the fact there is material blessing for obedience now. We wait for it though, and. That also means that we do not obey merely for the sake of obedience. And what kind of surprises me sometimes is God is not overly pious, is to say we we obey just for the sake of obeying. Well, he rewards, he rewards, and he lures us into obedience with a very impressive carrot. Uh, And like Israel, uh, the reward we receive is not payment of. For our efforts. The last thing I'll say about this, part of the reason, again, sowing is removed from the text of Deuteronomy. You don't sow in Canaan in this text, but gathering is there, is to show that what Israel takes in by way of reward is not a result of her work, it is the result of God's work. And this, uh, I think, is absolutely astounding. The work, the reward is not fair exchange value for the work. The reward is God's gift for what he gave us to do while we were here. So uh, we are raised to spiritual life. The spirit transforms us, gives us work to do, and gives us the strength to walk in that work. And then God rewards us for the work that the spirit did. Ephesians 2, I'll read to you verses 4 to 10 real quick. So Ephesians 2, verse 4 to 10. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward you in Christ Jesus, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And notice the line in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That immeasurable riches of grace, emphatically denied that it is a result of our own work, we're rewarded for the work God does. That's the immeasurable riches of his kindness toward us. So that's where we as Christians can take this text in Deuteronomy 11 and run in uh, affirming everything Moses says here, we we experience the same things just on a different timetable, and under a different covenant. Thoughts or questions over all of that material? Several times you refer to, I think I misheard, "satanic covenant." Could you spell that and tell us the origin of that? I could, no, but. <laughs> No, I, I, it, yeah, so, so the proper term is probably Sinai covenant, but I call it the Sinatic, um, just a Noahic, Mosaic covenants, Davidic covenant, just to add the ick at the end, so Sinai, ick, <laughs> Sinatic, yeah. probably one of my oddities more than anything else, anything else? Thanks, Josh. Okay. We'll maybe make a run for just a couple more verses here. Canaan is a place of abundant blessing, but that does not come without threat. Verse 16 and 17. Moses gives a warning. Take care, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. Does anyone have a different translation than take care lest your heart be deceived? Heed. Okay, heed. Heed careful? Okay. Um, All of those are good. Fair translations. The ESV translates uh, the result of not paying attention to Moses as being deceived. Um, Some might say something like gullible. Uh, At any rate, here's the trick. When Israel enters Canaan, the inhabitants of Canaan will have been in the habit of attributing their material prosperity to any number of gods. None of them Yahweh, your God. Israel has to trust that Yahweh, her God, has been taking care of the land of Canaan in spite of the Canaanites in a special way all the way up to this point. And here again it becomes important. The attention of the Lord is on the land, not exactly the inhabitants per se. Again, I said we'd be going back to Genesis 2, and here we are. The time has arrived. What the Lord does in Canaan is parallel to what he did in Genesis 2 in regard to Eden. Genesis 2, verses 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, which means he prepared a place for a man to be, and there he put the man whom he formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is a place already set with abundant provision, ready for God's people to enter. Jump down to Genesis 2 verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of the tree of the garden, every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Continued blessing for obedience, curse for disobedience. Israel has to trust, in spite of what everyone around them is saying, that Yahweh is the one who cared for the land of Canaan, preparing it for them in the same way he had prepared the land for Adam. Now, we are usually told to have an open mind, right? And I I know that this argument goes back and was very prominent probably, what, two decades ago? Have an open mind to things, right? Well, the verbiage behind being deceived in Hebrew could actually be read, take care lest your mind be open, which leads to being deceived, but take care lest your mind be open, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. The heart of faith actually is a pretty closed heart. It's not open to the possibility that there might be other gods there or that someone else might be taking care of them. It's it's closed off to all other options. There is one, and that's it. The heart of faith is not an open heart. Because if, the, if Israel has an open mind, they will listen to the Canaanites, they will be enticed and deceived, and that will lead them down the path of destruction. Heavens will close up, rain won't come, nothing more will happen, as the Lord vents his wrath on Israel. Verse 17, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens, and so on and so forth. So one can see how it works. Israel marches into the land of Canaan. They start slaughtering some Canaanites, but they also hear in the course of it. Wow, this is a pretty, pretty well-supplied place, right? In fact, Deuteronomy 6, let's just go back there, because we're not making it any further in Deuteronomy 11 this morning. Deuteronomy 6, verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to you. Now listen how it's described. With great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, take care lest you forget the Lord. So in Deuteronomy 6, all of this is already there. It's set, ready for you. Come in, take it. The warning there is be careful against forgetting God. Here it's be careful, don't be enticed by the Canaanites because they're going to tell you how they got all this good stuff and they're not going to attribute it to the Lord. You close your mind off to that. Don't listen to it, shut up your ears, pay attention to what Moses has commanded and to what he has said. And now this here leads to a subtle danger. Canaan is a fruitful place, in spite of the Canaanites, that does not show the Lord is blessing the Canaanites, nor that any other gods are working for them. That shows the perfection of God's character, who makes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust, and to make his sun shine on the righteous and the wicked. It shows the perfection of God's character. So when Israel goes in, they shouldn't be foolish enough as to think God has been blessing them, They're to have a closed heart and says, no, the Lord was blessing them for our sake before we even got here. And that shows the greatness of God's character. And they benefit from it. We are at time here, so I will pause. If you have any thoughts or questions about that, feel free to come up and see me. Otherwise, we will meet next week, which will be our last week before the Christmas break.